to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hi, good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the webinar series. And today, it's my very great pleasure to introduce you to my friend and mentor, Cindy Rivera-Weisblum. Cindy is the president and CEO of the Edwin Gould Foundation here in New York City, but prior to that has also held a number of executive positions in nonprofits. So this is an opportunity for us to have a conversation and ask Cindy, where do we go from here in this unprecedented time? So welcome, Cindy, and welcome to all of you. Thank you. So Cindy, tell us a little bit about yourself and your path in the nonprofit world. Sure. Before I start, I just want to wish everyone good health and wellness and strength as you attempt to go through your daily lives in this time like no other. Um, I see there's some friends on the call. And so for those of you that I haven't had the pleasure to meet, hello. And um, I joined the Edwin Gould Foundation in 2007 um, with an amazing board and an amazing team to do something that I had been imagining. And that was to create an accelerator, a residential accelerator for nonprofits. And use the experiences that I had had as an executive director and 30 years of my life in working in the nonprofit sector to create a space that welcomed leaders and organizations and relieved them of their infrastructure costs for five years. And at the Accelerator, we dedicate our our wisdom and our intellect and our experience and our hearts and minds to the leaders to help them develop their organizations, sustain them and thrive and have them thrive and troubleshoot and apply all the resources that we have to the organization and the leaders. And I've just been incredibly fortunate to be able to do this. And I'm ever grateful to the foundation board to have taken this leap with me to create this nonprofit residential accelerator. And each year that we continue to do it, we learn so much more about the development of community and how the, the strength that comes from being with community and now more than ever, especially. So Cindy, I know that you, you know, personally are committed to particularly youth and children, and um, you really focused a lot of your efforts on the college going issue. Uh, I know you also have a background as a social worker, and I know you've personally mentored lots of executive directors, myself included, having come to the Accelerator. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about trends that you see around across different executive directors and the challenges that they face as they scale up their organizations? Yeah, I think this is a time, as I said before, this is a time like no other. And for all of us, we're taking a pause because we don't know what is ahead for us. We don't know if we're entering a a longer term recession or even a depression. And so as we, as we sit back in this stress and in this anxiety in hopes of developing strategies for our organizations to thrive, we are thrust into a, a way of 
thinking that we never have had to before. And I know that many of us are looking at summer programming and are looking at next year's programming and jockeying for a way in which to bring resources so that we continue to reach out to families and students, especially in our sector, which is low income college completion. We're, we're expecting tremendous fallout in how lower income students move from high school graduation or move towards college graduation in these times. Um, for affluent families, they will find a way to manage the fallout for their children, whether it be academically, social emotionally, career-wise. But for low-income students, um, the fear is that they will lag so, so far behind. And there's a lot of talk right now in the sector about this graduating class from high school and this graduating class from college to, to bear the brunt long-term of the COVID recession and, and COVID disease, not only in jobs, but you know, graduating from college. So we certainly need to keep our eye on those classes that are gonna be most affected. So let me follow up on that because on a broader sector question, I mean, you know, you and I obviously are very focused on youth development and education. We've been talking on this webinar and other places about the fact that, look, not all nonprofits are going to make it through this, and let's not pretend that, that we are. And so I'm wondering if you have any perspective or vision through who, who might make it and who might not and, and how to make that decision. Well, this pan pandemic has dealt a stunning blow to our sector and to nonprofits everywhere and to everyone. And our first response has been to develop an emergency fund for um, children and families of the organizations that we support. And we're very um, happy that that money, because of the strength of the organizations in the accelerator, has been quickly distributed. We as well relieved all organizations of their reporting. We issued all our 2020 grants immediately. We moved all funds to general operating and we extended residency in the accelerator for three organizations that were about to leave the accelerator and incur a tremendous amount of rent costs and infrastructure costs. So I think if foundations look that way immediately on how they can help the organizations that they have been supporting, again, Every crisis brings opportunity in some way. And we're really inspired by the leaders of the organizations, their innovation, the way they're reaching out to each other, the ability to pivot and be nimble. And that is, that is a, a strength, that is a muscle that's worked and develops. And, and quite frankly, it's never being developed as, as hard and strongly as it is being right now. But we're enormously impressed and, and really see ourselves standing alongside the organizations that we support, standing back and encouraging, being a support, because we know that their innovation and their commitment will weather this storm. We will, we absolutely will. And, and we know everyone is not going to do well. Um, and anyone that tells you who and who, you know, we don't know, but we know that organizations are thinking smartly 
and they're thinking about whether this is going to be a long-term recession or a depression, preparing contingency plans for what is looking forward because there is so much unknown before us. You've obviously had a very long career in the nonprofit sector, both as an executive director Mm -hmm. and on the foundation side. And I'm wondering, I mean, yes, this is totally unprecedented, but I'm wondering if you could talk about any lessons learned from other crises, be it, you know, post 9-11 or Sandy or, you know, the 2008 crash. I have never experienced anything analogous to what is happening now. The certainty, um, the unknowns, the grief, the fear, the, you know, that real anticipation, that feeling of an anticipation of loss, whether it be on the economic, on the, on the, you know, on, on the emotional side, just never experienced anything analogous to this. I think that leadership in the time of COVID-19 is about going forth with uncertainty, attempting as a leader to calm your mind and go about this with tremendous humility because no one, no one knows the answers. And so humility coupled with an acceptance of perfection, imperfection, I think is tremendously important because there are no guarantees. So when I sit in this leadership position and, and think about all my friends and colleagues, it's, it's, it's as if you are taking the hand of someone that's walking ahead of you and you're taking the hand of someone that's walking behind you. And together we're going forth into this unknown without answers. I do believe greatly that in the quieting of the mind and the practice of reducing the anxiety and the chatter, that answers can come. I deeply believe that. I deeply believe that when you reduce those tensions and those anxieties and the chatter and the fear, answers evolve. I'd like to take a minute to share with you Many of your listeners may know the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen master. And he wrote, and I just want to read this to you for a minute. When the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms and pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calmed and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for others to survive. And that has been so important that I have looked to that teaching so many times since we closed our offices on March 8th to calm me because, you know, we are all ser humanos, we're all human. And when that fear and that anxiety bubbles up to us, within us, it is it is hurting, it is hurtful, and it is contagious. And so as we, as leaders, understand that our role is to remain calm in the boat so that others will will feel that, and together we can um, 
look to the wisdom of one another to help us move forward in a positive way. Yeah. And I think that's so important when you do have positional authority because everyone's looking to you as to how they should be acting or what they should be doing. Um, can I turn the conversation a little bit? Because I'm wondering if you could speak more broadly to what's happening at the foundation level, you know, knowing that there are a lot of unknowns out there. Uh, you've been involved with philanthropy in New York, and so I think have a very unique view of what the what's happening across different grant makers. I know lots of folks that I've spoken with in the last couple of weeks are really concerned about funding, both in terms of holding on to their existing funding and looking at new funding. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about like what's the what's the conversation happening at the foundation level? Are people looking at new grantees or should nonprofits expect that they they won't be able to bring new funders on within the next year, say? Well, I'd, I'd just like to say that Philanthropy New York was immediately on top of this. I guess it was March 12th or 13th. They were lobbying for the inclusion of nonprofits in the CARES Act. And for several weekends, there was a tremendous, you know, weekdays, weekend working around the clock to, to advocate for nonprofits to be in the CARES Act. Um, we've, I've been on many calls um, with foundation leaders sponsored by Philanthropy New York um, and others. And I think that I do believe there is such positive intention about continuing to support the organizations that are in the portfolios and as, as well as directing funding towards COVID-19 emergency issues. So what I am hearing, it's not about this or that, it's about this and that. And it's um and how and giving more, certainly giving more. So I think that the foundation community has stepped up. I also think that we all know that cities and states, school districts are going to be suffering greatly in the year ahead because of budget cuts. And these are issues that philanthropy can't solve, but that philanthropy I've been talking with a great many colleagues about shifting dollars to advocacy, to influence policy, because that is where much of the broad solution strategy lies. How does this market downturn affect giving? So I know that there might be the positive intention on the part of foundation executives to try to deploy as much as many resources as possible, but when endowments take a hit, there's only so much money that can be given out. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Sure. Even though foundation portfolios go down, there's just more to give. There is. Just because the portfolio goes down doesn't mean you don't give more. And that's certainly what we've been seeing and hearing with our colleagues. Everyone's committed to going above. 5% isn't a, a law. You can go above. And I think that the calls that I've been on have all been advocating for spending more. That's really good to hear. So last question before I open it up to the folks on the call, how might you suggest that executive directors who are running their nonprofits position themselves or communicate with their, their existing funders and potentially new funders in order to put themselves in a position that they're able to get resources to their, to their mission? I believe that the analysis begins prior to really understanding your, your cash flow your cash on hand, 
projecting what the future might look like in an extended recession or even a depression, as I mentioned earlier. I think it's about numbers significantly to truly understand your financial condition and be able to talk about it. Humility and understanding about where you sit in your need for funds and how your particular mission cannot be, um, we can't pull, we can't let up the, the gas pedal on your mission. So for, for many of you in low income college completion, secondary completion, there's a real vulnerability for those low income students about even persisting through certificate programs um, or, or two-year colleges. If we think that the two-year college graduation rate was low before this, we can just imagine what it's going to be now. And for many of our nonprofit communities, their strength lies in connectedness to families and students. And the number one difference that we're gonna make in weathering this up these years ahead is gonna be connecting to families. The Education Trust did a study the last two weeks of March to families in the New York City public schools. And between 90 and 95% of families said their number one concern was being able to connect directly to teachers and being able to connect directly to counselors. And that's what our nonprofit sector brings to this. We bring connectivity to families and students and abilities to advise virtually in a way that, quite frankly, many schools aren't able to do. And it is that bridge to individual advising and connectedness that's going to help families and students get access to services and move forward to help make the decisions that they need to make. And they need help in order to be informed how to make those decisions and what their options are. So I think there's a very strong role for us to play in the nonprofit sector especially those organizations that, that have that deep connections to students and families during this time. I mean, that's a well said, because I also think about, to your point about innovation, like how can we think about new and different partnerships that we've never had before or doing things that we've never done before because of this unprecedented time. And I think there's, a, there's an opportunity to be really creative and generative that I think once we get past the anxiety, we can start to think more broadly about. So I'm gonna open it up for questions right now because I, I know there are some folks who are really chomping at the bit to ask you questions. So um, I'm gonna drop over to Stephanie McGenzie. Stephanie, do you wanna unmute yourself and ask your question? My question is, in, in the current moment, everyone is rightfully so deeply focused on meeting the needs of individuals and families, you know, and, and basic needs. And our organization, we do policy work. And you talked about the need to really be ready to respond to um, state and local budget cuts and just a huge shifting of resources that's coming down the pike. How can I respectfully and but appropriately, you know, make a plea for investments in the kind of policy and advocacy work that we do at the American Youth Policy Forum? so that we are ready, you know, in new and different ways to be better advocates for the traditionally underserved young people that we serve without being insensitive to the need to direct resources where they need to go right now. Just let me say that, Stephanie, you don't need to be apologetic 
for what you're doing. This, there has been an awakening about the importance of policy because while we all knew that low-income families were being, how they were suffering, this pandemic has pulled the scab off uh, and shown the, the suffering and the pain that low-income families are going through and the impact that the kind of losses that we've experienced will, will have on youth and families going forward. So the sector is aware, the sector is ready. And don't, do not apologize for advocating for dollars to influence policy because that is where the solution lies. And it ever, even, it's just so much more appropriate. It's greatly appropriate right now. Do not be apologetic. You have, you, you, you are sitting in the right place. Yeah, and I would also add, Stephanie, that um, I think policy is hugely important. And the, I think the more you can articulate the work to the everyday lives of people will be really effective in this time. Because I think policy can be a little bit abstract for people to understand. After World War II, people understood the need for a GI Bill. Mm -hmm. We need a GI Bill for our low-income families. Mm. And that's the kind of broad policy that's going to make permanent change in this social equity that has been, as I said, I, people are aware. People, people, there's a higher level of awareness now. Yeah. So, so Stephanie, you know, I think that you certainly should be proud and not hesitant to go forth because, as I said, you're in the right place. Let me jump over to Molly. Hi, Molly. Hi, thank you. Hi, Cynthia. Thank you so much, Ria. Thank you for this conversation. I'm feeling emotional. Um, I work in Washington Heights. I'm honored and grateful to serve a community in one school, the Washington Heights Exhibitionary Learning School Wheels. Friends of Wheels provides college access and success to over 400 high school students and 700 alumni. Our community is on the front lines. We have over 20 deaths in families from what we know. Our families are hungry. We're working to get food. We're partnering with local, other local organizations that are not asking families to stand on lines, but instead are delivering packages of food. So my question, Cynthia, is our organization is small. We're nimble. My job, my board's job is to ensure our survival in this time. Um, we have very little reserves, for example, and I also feel it is also our job to serve our community's needs. So how do you, what advice do you have? I believe in both and. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. I think we can do both. It's our job to do both, but it's a tricky, I feel like I'm walking a tightrope. Um, so I please would welcome any and all advice for a small nonprofit like ours. Thank you. So Molly, I'm, I'm sorry for the pain. I can see and hear it in your voice how you're suffering. And, and I just want to take a moment to say that caring for yourself and caring for your staff is certainly a tremendous part of all this. It's kind of where it all starts. And it, I have found that it's just about connecting with individual people. So while we've had meetings with our accelerator leaders, we have always, we have also been reaching out to the staffs of the organizations. There's 60 staff in the organizations that we serve. And 
that ability to connect with people all throughout the organizations. You know, they need to hear from you, that you need to hear from them and, and get strength from each other. I think that navigating the world of emergency relief is unrelenting. And it's very, um, it's very, can be very debilitating to hear those no's all the time. But I think that if you have the opportunity to, to deploy some of your staff and volunteers towards just getting in and accessing, beginning to apply for those emergency funds, I, I think that that's a helpful way um, because the more you put staff on it, the more, um, the more there's a possibility. So I think that first of all, you need to take care of yourself. Certainly you need to take care of yourself and you need to reach out to this community. Feel free to reach out to me afterwards because there is no um, shame today at three o'clock to crawl into bed and put the, the sheet over your face and go to sleep. Because I want you to know that tomorrow will be better if you allow yourself to take that pause and, and, and grieve grieve what's happening here because it is sad and it is hurtful and it, and it takes our insides and, and just pulls them. And so know that because you go to sleep today at three in the afternoon does not mean that tomorrow won't be better. Tomorrow will be better. I promise you. Cindy, I'm wondering if you could follow that up a little bit with talking about applying for emergency funds, because I think the sense that folks have is, you know, they have their funders. It seems like it's going to be very difficult to access new funders on a go forward basis, but perhaps there's an opportunity to engage new funders and new donors around emergency related resources and, and grants. Is that true, do you think? And what's the best way to kind of go about that? Well, I think that funders are gonna be asking you like what your, what specifically what your financial condition is. Mm -hmm. And what's your ability to, to continue? Mm -hmm. Also, they're going to be asking what contingency measures have you implemented? So I think it's important to have an answer. Are you freezing salaries? How are you redeploying monies? Um, how are you thinking about an extended recession? All of those answers are very important as you apply for funds. I think that your current funders, if you haven't already, talk to them talk to them. Now don't, you know, email, don't talk, get on a phone, have a, have a virtual coffee, tell them what you're going through and be prepared and knowledgeable about your financial condition. Um, I, and I think that ask, be specific, ask for a relief of your reporting and a relief of your outcomes. Ask for a relief of, ask for all your monies upfront with non-operating. Don't be apologetic. You know, it's with deep respect that you ask for these things. So I, I think that's the best way to start. One thing that we haven't touched on, and I'm wondering, Cindy, if you could speak to this, is how should boards be addressing this issue with their executives? Because I know you are also a board member. Um, and, I'm, and I have a board. And you have a board. So what, what sort of communications should we be having with them and what should they be doing in order to help to help stand with us in this time? 
So the first thing I did, um, we closed our office on March 8th because two people who are family members of someone in our office went to the emergency room on March 8th for flu-like symptoms. Um, that Sunday evening, we closed the offices for, and had them cleaned. And then while that was happening, we found out that someone had been in our offices that had tested positive for COVID on February 29th. So we closed our offices permanently on March 8th. And for that first week, it was helping the organizations to manage a swift shut. And so by February, by March, that next Friday, I called all my board members individually, let them know what was happening, and then called a board meeting um, a few, for a few days later. Um, first to discuss everything that we were doing, emergency fund, immediate all money now, all relief, extending accelerator residency to organizations. And then once that was done, it was dealing with the portfolio. 30% reduction. We happen to be in a situation where we have leased space in another building and signed the 15-year lease and a $2 million construction budget. So I'm sharing these specifics so that you can understand and think about your life, your world, and all of the different variables. So risk factors for us were operating two spaces at the same time, 30% reduction in the portfolio, organizations needing more money, needing to give out more than 5%. So my goal was to connect with my board members on a person-to-person -person level, their families, how are they doing, two board members whose families lived in Queens who were hospitalized at Northwell Health, that kind of personal connection to each of my board members, then moving on to what our organizations need and what families need, and then moving on to the state of our portfolio and what I'm recommending. So I would recommend that you as well think about all those factors, but above all, it's your connection with your board members individually that sets the a ripe soil for trust and discussion. And they're having a connection with you and confidence and faith in you that you are thinking about all the variables. That's helpful. You know, I think that the times of crisis bring out both the best and the worst in people. And I'm wondering if you might speak about, you know, I've heard from folks that there are board members who are really stepping up and kind of getting into the trenches with the EDs. And then there are other board members who have gone AWOL for whatever reason, it might be there. You know, they have their own personal challenges and so forth. And I'm wondering if you could speak about what a strategy might be there for board members who are not kind of stepping into the fray with you. So I first, um, <clears throat> the assumptions that you make about why a board member is not connecting need to be set aside. We, we really have no idea how other people are truly doing. And a society that tends to hide their emotions and hide behind, how are you? Fine, thanks. So I think that we, we sit in, um, in no judgment about what might be happening with someone else. And I, I have found the best approach to that is sending an email that says, 
<clears throat> I'd want you to know that I'm thinking about you and your family and your, your business and the families that you support in your business. And I hope that <clears throat> things are progressing. And when you have a moment, could we set up a time to talk? Best, you know, wellness to you and your family. So sit with, I, I tend to sit with that because there is no positivity of assuming that they've just gone AWOL or that they're not paying attention. Everybody has an ability. You can only process so much and you kind of chunk things down for your mental health. And I have found that in times of crisis, my mind like only lets me deal with what I can deal with. And then when that part is settled, I can go on to the next thing. And it's kind of like, I, I think it's part of our internal survival mechanisms to chunk down in order to move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, driving down a country road with one headlight. You, you, you can only drive the road that you see ahead, but you can get there eventually. Uh, question coming in from Rochelle about reporting requirements. Rochelle, do you want to unmute yourself and ask? We can't hear you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, hi, Cindy. Hi. Uh, hi. Uh, so I'm very lucky uh, at work at One Goal. We're very lucky to be a part of the Accelerator Program. And so uh, I've been working with Cindy now for three, four years at this point. And so just I'm so grateful to see you again. I think we checked in earlier this week, but I also just want to always publicly thank you for your leadership and your vision um, and your support. Um, I, one of the things that we're thinking about right now in terms of you, you made a statement about like connecting with our funding community. And so we've done that. Um, and in those conversations, we've been really specifically talking about two separate things. One is uh, to work with funders to help us close our funding gap for this fiscal year, which for us ends in June. Um, and also thinking about what that might, uh, the support that, that we could look for in the upcoming fiscal year. Um, for fiscal year 21, as we think about what does it mean to support our students and continue our program in the year to come. And I think um, uh, we've we've done a little bit around the, the fiscal year 20 stuff and have done the emergency grant applications. I guess the question is we're thinking about fiscal year 21, it, it seems like many foundations to the point that we've been talking through uh, throughout this conversations don't really truly have a sense of what they're gonna be able to commit from a financial standpoint. But I guess I'm curious, um, uh, how are funders thinking about the reporting requirements that we would have for the upcoming fiscal year? I think in these conversations, folks are just generally interested to see how we've shifted and pivoted. Um, and we've, for the most part, you know, canceled many of our goals just because we know this is a different environment or are actively working towards hitting them, but know that's not going to be the same. But curious, uh, as we think about the upcoming year, like how do we think about the goals that we are setting um, and what funders might want to hold us accountable to in terms of um, like maintaining those relationships or thinking about the year ahead? Thanks, Rochelle. Great to see you as well. I'm a big fan, obviously, you know, of one goal. And I think that where one goal is positioned is to step even further into this um, need that's going to exist in 2021 and 2022 with guiding and connecting students and, you know, thinking about shifting your products to a, to a partial or full virtual platform, because this is going to be the, the connectivity, the string, the support that lets these low-income students keep going towards their goals, because without that, they will be 
a, a, even more dramatically unguided. Because if we thought that the counselor-student ratio was high when, when things were before COVID, we don't even know how kids are going to go to school. We don't even know how many hours they're going to go to school. But one thing that is constant is the work of one goal. And so I think you have an incredible story to tell to your funders that actually we are part of the solution strategy. I firmly believe that. And as you have already begun to think about how you're going to pivot your services, you have the ability to guide the students with wisdom and tool up your staff to be able to answer the kinds of questions and guide in a way that they haven't been able to before. So I actually think that you, you know, this, this, this part of your DNA that works directly with students is going to be a lifeline to the students and is also going to be a very attractive funding base, fund, funding opportunity. If I could also chime in, I, I do think that there is a really unique opportunity here, Rochelle, to partner with your funders around being generative, right? Because I think foundation executives want to know what's happening. They want to be part of the work. They want to be part of the solution. And so I think often, at least in my case, I, uh, especially in my early years of fundraising, I, I wasn't quite sure how to engage people on that partnership level. But the fact is like you have to go into a relationship on your feet, not on your knees. And like, these are people and they care about the things that you care about. And so how do you engage them as problem solvers and partners in the work? Would you agree with that, Cindy? You're leading your funders along because you are the expert. That's right. And that's very, very important. While the foundation folks want to be involved and, and supportive, but you are the expert. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that um, commanding that and communicating that is such an important part of it. Cindy, to your point, this is a time for tremendous leadership. And if you are able to be the honest broker that brings people together, I think it speaks well of you and puts you in a great position uh, to bring resources to the table. There's a question coming in from Lena. Lena, do you wanna unmute yourself and ask your question? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for this conversation, Leah and uh, Cindy. So great to hear your perspectives and just in general to have these forums to hear from lots of members of the community. So really great. Um, I'm working with Let's Get Ready, which is an organization serving students from Maine to Philadelphia, but um, with a, a big a big catchment in New York City. Um, and we do much of our programming is now virtual. Um, so virtual advising in 12th grade and throughout college. So um, obviously making sure that those programs are sort of very uh, relevant to the moment right now. We have some in-person programming, which we've now pivoted to virtual as well. My question is really, um, I think we've done a job of engaging our current funders, our board, sort of our existing community of support and really engaging them with you know, our response right now, sort of how we're pivoting um, and providing some sort of uh, inspiration around that. I've been really curious about the right balance of reaching out to new foundations um, and new institutions for support. Um, there's sort of just, you know, letting them know what we're up to and leaving it at that. But I think also given that we're actually well equipped to 
accelerate our programming right now and, and you know, sort of take advantage of the fact that we have a lot of virtual infrastructure built. And so we're able to do really high quality advising at this moment, um, even to more students if, if that was, um, you know, something that was possible. And so I've been trying to figure out that right balance of being sensitive and appropriate, knowing that foundations are kind of rightly circling the wagons around their existing grantees, um, but also wanting to make sure I'm not, um, you know, uh, doing a disservice organization by not sort of putting us out there. Um, so I was curious to hear any thoughts about that. Hi, Lena. I think what you've done already, this that you've informed not only your current funders, but also potential funders about what you're doing innovatively now, about your virtual platform, about how it's being deployed right now, about that it's positioned to deploy to, to be deployed to more. That's that's the message that you need to be sending. And I think over the next few weeks, it's going to be appropriate to start to think talk about the next the world beyond, because I think that we're getting sort of. I know personally, I had people call me for for new funding like two weeks ago, and and I couldn't. I didn't have a head. You know, I didn't have space in my head for it. Right. But I said, why don't you call me in May? And so that's my general feeling that we'll be able to like think a little bit more broadly in May. But I think most importantly is that you're, you, you, have, you have a virtual platform, which is a very um, highly valued commodity, not only for yourself, but for others. Mm -hmm. And Rhea brought up, brought up something about the importance of partnerships right now and how you might be able to effectively bring your product to others, your virtual platform to others, so that more, more young people can be served. So the question is not only about how I can scale up with the population I serve, but how can I contribute to the sector? And I think the question you ask yourself is, what and how much can I do for the sector now? that doesn't strain me financially, but that builds my brand in the marketplace. Yes, that's very helpful. I appreciate that. That's sort of the, the line I've been walking. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, and Lena, if I could just double click on everything Cindy just said, I think there's tremendous opportunity because everybody is really scrambling right now. And if this is a core competency that you have, I think you could really serve the sector and, and position yourself well to be in service, but also to build your reputation as an organization that both serves your direct kids, but also serves the community at large. I guess just to um, add to that previous question, I had a similar question about um, how to best introduce yourself to new funders. <clears throat> And I was on a few foundation calls where uh, they said it was, you know, a great time to submit LOIs, but you'd be considered for next year and that, you know, they would waive kind of um, specifics around um, uh, your letter of introduction to specific kind of grant um, uh, needs. Um, do you have any recommendations on what would be most compelling information to include if you are doing kind of a general LOI and introduction to um, foundations that aren't currently existing, don't currently um, fund you? I do believe that communicating um, what you've been doing in response, how you shift, how you pivot, what do you foresee as your future 
um, direction, what you've gleaned from this, how you've, um, what you're projecting. So a real introspective approach and what, and communicating, we've thought deeply about what's been happening generally. We've thought about our product, our services. We've been informed and have heard and have thought deeply about what's happening now. And this is how we will progress. And this is how our contribution to the sector will be even more impactful. So I think creating that, that thread between this is where we were, this is how we've understood what's happening, and this is how we are ever more relevant going forward. Cindy, to your point, I think this is the opportunity for us to both acknowledge the criticality of the situation, but also to offer hope. Because as a sector, we deal in hope. Like that's, that's our competitive advantage. And so the ways in which we can communicate hope and what happens after this and the ways in which we're serving our communities is going to be critical. Quick question in a, in a purely tactical way for executive directors or other um, you know, executives at an organization. What do you think are the two to three things that we need to be doing right now to prepare for the coming economic decline? I, I guess the first thing I say to everybody is take care of your staff. Understand deeply what's happening with them. Um, just connect with your staff. Second is analyze cash flow, um, cash on hand, your run rate every month, what changes you see to your run rate every month. And then in the event of a recession, an extended recession and a depression, how would you shift? Um, I hear everybody freeze, freezing salaries. Everyone is trying to keep their staffs on payroll as long as they can. If you received PPP money, you need to, you know, obviously there are criteria that allow you to, to retain all that money as grant if you keep your employees employed until June 30th. But I think that any executive director that doesn't have a deep understanding of their fiscal condition, how they can pivot, cash on hand, those are the kind of questions that funders are asking in order to understand the organization's viability and how they can be most helpful. Cindy, as a follow-up to that, I mean, one of the things that I know about you is that you're a tremendous leader. You're somebody who does take care of your staff. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what kind of communications should EDs be um, deploying to their staff? How often, you know, what, what sort of feeling do we want to make sure that our staff come away with? Well, I, I know that um, many leaders have encouraged people to take days away from the Zoom. I think it's a very individual situation. We've spoken with a lot of staff. We have staff whose parents are um, undocumented and lost their salaries immediately. We have staff that make between, like staff that make 40 or $45,000 a year, 30, $35,000 a year. 
and they are now the sole, in, the sole income provider because they live with their parents. We have staff whose partners have lost their jobs. We have staff whose partners are healthcare workers and are dealing with the, that, um, that stress of having a, a person come into the apartment, you know, having been with COVID all day. So we, I have always been a leader who has demonstrated for my staff and sacrificed to develop trust so that um, there's an established, there's a trust-based relationship, which allows for a much better um, working relationship and ability to serve your staff. Because I do see staff as part of my service as well. So um, I know that all of you have staff and I just wondered if we could open it up to everyone for a moment to just share their, what, they, what has worked well for them with their staff at this time. Yeah, definitely. Anybody has any thoughts or any tactics that they can share? Feel free to unmute yourself. This is Stephanie Vincenzo. The one thing um, I have stressed with my team from the very beginning is that they are essential workers, but they are essential personnel to their families um, mm -hmm. and to their families first. And so just being, um, it's not even being flexible, it's being responsive to the fact that they are dealing with, you know, what's happening both in a personal and a professional capacity. And in order for them to show up in the way that I need them to show up on the professional side, they have to do just Cindy, what you and Ray have been talking about, which is taking care of themselves mm -hmm. and putting their masks on first so that we can be helpful to other people. Mm -hmm. We have a virtual community committee, um, which is creating opportunities to build community new virtual world. So, I mean, I'm sure this is common, but we've, you know, last night we had our first virtual happy hour. There's been virtual workouts where people work out together on Zoom um, or have, you know, sort of cooking classes together. So just different ways that people can still connect um, and sort of merge the fact that we're also so much more embedded in our personal lives while we're working and sort of bring that whole picture to um, to our uh, colleagues in a way that feels you know comfortable. Cindy, we have one more minute. Is there anything that you'd like to share to send us off into our weekend with? I wish you all strength and I wish you all wellness. And if I can be of service to you in some way, please reach out to me. And I just wish you and your families and your work families strength and wellness. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you so much for your leadership and everything that you do. Thank you. And nice. all of you, good luck. Uh, please feel free to reach out to myself or Cindy. I'll make sure to put all of the information in the notes when we post this video. And be well. Bye.